Hello everyone and welcome to the November 24th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A Fresno applicant attorney prevailed in a legal malpractice case brought by his client who lost his workers' compensation claim. Here's what happened in the unpublished court of appeal case of Griffin versus Berlin. And Tuan Griffin retained a Fresno attorney, Alex Berlin, to represent him in a claim before the WCAB. Griffin claimed he was entitled to benefits for a low back injury sustained during a one-day job in 2009. Although Griffin claimed that he experienced severe low back pain the next day, he did not seek treatment and notify his employer until several days after he said he was injured. QME John Branscombe, M.D., examined Griffin and prepared a report. Griffin described the event, his current symptoms, and past medical history during the examination. Griffin denied having any prior symptoms, injuries, or disability to his low back, denied having any prior workers-related injuries, or being the recipient of any prior industrial or non-industrial awards or settlements. Based on this information provided, Dr. Branscombe concluded that Griffin did indeed suffer an injury as he claimed. However, at the MSC prior to going to trial, the defense attorneys listed medical records showing that Griffin suffered a work-related back injury in 1985 and received workers' compensation benefits back then. The records also showed he sought treatment for chronic back pain in 1990, received care for pain in the lumbar area in 2001, and underwent an evaluation for persistent back pain in 2006. After reviewing this medical evidence, Attorney Berlin initiated settlement negotiations and the defense offered $13,000 to settle the case. Mr. Berlin conveyed this offer to Mr. Griffin multiple times and recommended that he accept it. But Griffin refused this offer and denied the authenticity of the medical records and claimed that he never had an earlier back injury. Griffin then dismissed Mr. Berlin as his attorney after trial, but before the workers' compensation matter was ruled upon. The work comp judge then found that Griffin did not sustain an industrial injury to his back. The judge questioned his credibility, noting that he changed his testimony several times during trial and gave a false and contradictory medical history to Dr. Branscombe. The judge further observed that despite his denials, it was clear from the medical records that he sustained a substantial industrial back injury in 1985 that kept him off work until 1988. Griffin then filed a civil action against Mr. Berlin, alleging he committed legal malpractice and breached his fiduciary duty. The trial court in the civil action granted summary judgment in Mr. Berlin's favor. The trial court concluded that there was no evidence that either Berlin nor his associate, Christopher White, fell below the standard of care or breached any fiduciary duty in representing Mr. Griffin. Griffin appealed the dismissal of his malpractice case 
which was affirmed by the Court of Appeal in the unpublished decision of Griffin versus Berlin. In support of a summary judgment motion, Mr. Berlin submitted the expert declaration of Thomas Toussaint, an experienced workers' compensation attorney. Mr. Toussaint said that neither Mr. Berlin nor his associate fell below the standard of care for providing legal services to applicants before the WCAB. Mr. Toussaint explained that there were no grounds for objection to the admission of applicants' earlier medical records. In opposing the motion, Mr. Griffin failed to submit any admissible evidence to rebut Mr. Toussaint's opinion and thus did not establish the existence of a triable issue of material fact. Accordingly, the trial court properly granted summary judgment. The phrase, what we've got here is a failure to communicate, is a quotation from the 1967 Paul Newman film, Cool Hand Luke. And the WCAB said nearly the same phrase in the new significant panel decision of Bodum versus San Bernardino County Department of Social Services as it invalidated the employer's UR decision. This famous film line should serve as a constant reminder about the implications of failing to follow the last steps of the UR process. So here's what happened. Timothy Bottom sustained industrial injury to his lower back while employed by San Bernardino County Department of Social Services. His primary treating physician, Edward G. Stokes, M.D., referred him for a surgical consultation to Dr. Chang of Loma Linda University Medical Center. Dr. Chang faxed an RFA on October 28, 2013 to the State Compensation Insurance Fund requesting authorization to perform three-level fusion surgery. The state fund referred the RFA to its UR agent the same day. <clears throat> On October 31, the UR decision was to deny the treatment request because the surgery was not medically supported. The state fund mailed written denial letters to the applicant and to Dr. Chang with copies to applicant's attorney. But there was no evidence that the UR decision was communicated to Dr. Chang by fax, phone, or email within 24 hours after the UR decision was made. There was also no evidence that written notice of the UR decision was provided to applicant Dr. Chang or applicant's attorney within two business days after the UR decision was made. The work comp judge found that the WCAB has jurisdiction to adjudicate treatment since the UR process was untimely. The work comp judge ordered the record reopen for development by submission of a supplemental report from Dr. Chang concerning the proposed surgery. The WCAB in what it classified as a significant panel decision held that the work comp judge correctly determined that defendant's UR decision was not timely communicated and therefore invalid. The WCAB held that a defendant is obligated to comply with all time requirements in conducting UR, including the time frames for communicating the UR decision. A UR decision that is timely made but is not timely communicated is untimely. 
When a UR decision is untimely and therefore invalid, the necessity of the medical treatment at issue may be determined by the WCAB based upon substantial medical evidence. UR time limits are mandatory. A UR decision not only must be timely made, it must be timely communicated. A UR decision that is not timely communicated is of no use and defeats the legislative intent. These communication time limits run from the date the UR decision is made, even if the UR decision is made in less than the five days allowed under Labor Code Section 4610G1. The Court of Appeal also ruled that the Labor Code presumption of employment by the homeowner for an unlicensed contractor is inapplicable in small jobs. Here's what happened in the case of Escalera versus Waller. Mr. Tung, the homeowner, hired Michael Waller, who owned Waller Tree Care, to perform services that included removing one tree and trimming four others. The price for the work was $400. Mr. Tung was unaware that Waller was not licensed as a contractor. He knew only that Waller had advertised on Yelp.com as being bonded and insured. Waller did not have workers' compensation insurance at the time. Waller appeared at Mr. Tung's property to do the work accompanied by his helper, Jose Luis Escalera. Mr. Escalera leaned on a ladder up against a tree and climbed up about 10 feet and then fell. Escalera filed a civil action against the homeowner and Mr. Waller alleging negligence. Mr. Tung, the homeowner, moved for summary judgment contending that Escalera was not his employee but an employee of Mr. Waller and an independent contractor. In his opposition, the injured worker agreed that Mr. Waller was an independent contractor, but he raised the peculiar risk doctrine to argue that Tung was liable whether or not he was personally negligent because plaintiff was performing inherently dangerous work and Tung must bear responsibility for all risks of injury to a worker regardless of fault. The parties debated the application of the exception to the peculiar risk doctrine expressed in the 1993 California Supreme Court case that established the Prevet Doctrine. The Superior Court ruled in the homeowner's favor, and the Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in favor of the homeowner in the unpublished case. The Workers' Compensation Act is inapplicable because Escalera worked less than 52 hours on Mr. Tung's property. Plaintiff does, however, assert that Tung was his employer for purposes of civil tort liability under Labor Code Section 2750.5. The undisputed facts show that Waller was a contractor who did not have a contractor's license, but it was undisputed that the contract price for the tree trimming was $400. Accordingly, the presumption would not have applied. An investigation by the DEA of several NFL teams this month was triggered by a class action lawsuit filed in federal court in May by more than 1,300 retired NFL players. In the suit, they allege that the NFL medical staffs regularly violate federal and state laws by providing powerful addictive narcotics such as Percocet and Percodan, sleeping pills such as Ambien, and the non-addictive painkiller 
Toradol to help them play through injuries on game days. Federal law prohibits anyone but a physician or nurse practitioner from distributing prescription drugs, and they must meet myriad regulations for acquiring, storing, labeling, and transporting them. It is also illegal for a physician to distribute prescription drugs outside of his geographical area of practice. Inspired by the allegations of this class action suit, drug agents conducted surprise inspections of National Football League team medical staffs as part of an ongoing investigation into prescription drug abuse in the league. The inspections entailed bag searches and questioning of team doctors by DEA agents. The medical staffs were part of travel parties whose teams were playing at stadiums across the country. The San Francisco 49ers confirmed they were inspected by federal agents following their game against the New York Giants in New Jersey. The 49ers medical staff complied and the team departed the stadium as scheduled. Multiple teams also met with federal authorities on the same day. The class action lawsuit led by former stars Jim McMahon and Richard Dent filed in U.S. District Court in San Francisco alleges the league illegally supplied them with painkillers to conceal injuries and mask pain. The players say addictive drugs were administered without proper prescriptions in illegal doses without medical supervision, and with little or no explanation of risks and dangers. The lawsuit alleges that dependency on pain medication outlasts football careers. The NFL reached an agreement last year to settle concussion-related litigation with former players. Many of these former players also filed concussion-related workers' compensation claims in California. The league now faces this new courtroom challenge. Workers' compensation defense attorneys expect new claims based upon the pain medication allegations. And now our fraud report. Our next story shows how hard it is to stop a rogue doctor. 58-year-old Sarai Jayantha Wigagantine, an Anaheim Hills-based doctor who practices out of a medical marijuana clinic, has been court-ordered to stop practicing medicine while he is out on bail for the alleged sexual assault of a female patient. But he was already out on bail in a separate case after losing in a jury trial that accused him of having defrauded Medicare. Meanwhile, based on the Medicare fraud case, the California Medical Board has recommended he permanently be stripped of his license to practice. As with the sexual assault case, that matter is pending and his doctor is mounting a legal fight. In a Medicare case, federal prosecutors claimed that he prescribed powered wheelchairs to patients who did not need them. His medical equipment supplier, Build Medicare, got reimbursed and paid the physician kickbacks. In 2013, a jury found him guilty of six counts of health care fraud and two counts of conspiracy. He was sentenced to 27 months in federal prison, but federal appellate judges ruled he did not have to serve the sentence while he appealed his conviction. For nearly a year, he had been allowed to stay out of federal prison and practice medicine as he prosecuted an appeal of his conviction of defrauding Medicare. 
He was still licensed to practice medicine, and that's what he was doing at a medical marijuana clinic in Riverside, where he allegedly sexually assaulted a woman patient last May. He pleaded not guilty to the sexual assault charges, and the Riverside County Superior Court judge just ordered him to stop practicing medicine until the sexual assault case is resolved. He had to turn over his prescription pads as well. Now an accusation has been filed against him before the Medical Board of California on October 6th. The allegations are based upon the facts giving rise to his federal jury trial and conviction and seeks revocation or suspension of his physician's and surgeon's certificate. These cases are all now pending while he is still free on bail. A Santa Clarita pain doctor has resolved a whistleblower claim of fraud by one of his billing clerks for nearly $1 million. Darinder S. Grewal, M.D., who operates the Santa Clarita Surgery Center for Advanced Pain Management on the 23800 block of McBean Parkway in Valencia, agreed to pay nearly $1 million to the United States and just under $113,000 to the state of California. The settlement concludes a federal whistleblower lawsuit filed by Chandra Basu, who used to provide billing and collection services to the Greenwall Clinic. Basu's lawsuit alleged that Greenwall and his clinic obtained improper reimbursements from government-run health insurance programs, including Medicare, Medi-Cal, and TRICARE. The lawsuit also alleged that Greenwall and his clinic submitted fraudulent claims by upcoding medical services. The whistleblower provisions of the False Claim Act permits a private person to sue on behalf of the United States and California and to share in the proceeds of the suit. As a result, the whistleblower here will receive a total of $204,000. The case was handled by the United States Attorney's Office and the California Attorney General's Office in conjunction with the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Defense Criminal Investigative Service. 43-year-old William Parker from Corona is charged with 15 felony counts of insurance fraud, four felony counts of making a fraudulent statement, two felony counts of attempted perjury under oath, and one felony account of perjury by declaration. Parker was hired by the Orange County Probation Department in 2005 as a deputy juvenile corrections officer. In 2007, he was involved in a non-work-related motor vehicle accident, which caused injuries to his back and resulted in loss of time from work. Parker filed an insurance claim as a result of that non-industrial automobile accident and received a settlement. Then in 2010, Parker claimed he suffered another back injury while working for the Orange County Probation Department. Parker filed a workers' compensation claim and was taken off work by his treating doctors after the county accepted the claim. Parker did not return to work until late February 2013 when he returned as an office specialist due to his claimed injuries. But in February 2012, while off work on his industrial case, Parker filed a lawsuit against a citizen claiming injuries to his back after sustaining yet another motor vehicle accident. 
During the pendency of his lawsuit, Parker is accused of making material misrepresentations and perjuring himself during his depositions and his responses to interrogatories. While being treated by doctors, Parker is accused of denying and failing to disclose the prior injuries about his back. If convicted, Parker faces a maximum sentence of 17 years and six months in state prison. Parker is currently being held on $50,000 bail. And in regulatory news, Insurance Commissioner Jones adopted an advisory average pure premium rate of $2.74 per $100 of payroll effective this January 1. The adopted amount is a 2.2% increase but lower than that which was proposed by the WCIRB. The Department of Insurance recommendation was made after a public hearing and careful review of the testimony and evidence submitted. The commissioner concluded that a greater reduction in medical losses should be used in the actuarial model due to the anticipated savings from SB 863. The adopted rate is still 6.7% above the industry's average filed rates as of July 1, 2014. Commissioner Jones, the WCIRB, and the public members' actu actuary all agree that the overall impact of SB 863 continues to result in savings for the workers' compensation system. The commissioner's pure premium decision is advisory only. Pursuant to California law, the commissioner does not set or have authority over workers' compensation insurance rates. The commissioner's rate is therefore not predictive of what an individual insurance company may charge its policyholders because the review of pure premium rates is just one component of insurance pricing. Earlier this year, workers' compensation claims leaders once again participated in a nationwide survey about some of the most pressing operational challenges. The results have now been published in the 2014 Workers' Compensation Benchmarking Study Report. Top issues involve addressing the rapidly shrinking talent pool, grappling with emergency technology trends, and operationalizing performance measures all while improving productivity and reducing costs. The 2014 study reflects an industry facing critical hurdles, many of which are not getting better. Key findings reveal declining investment in current and future talent development. Low adoption of disruptive technologies such as predictive analytics, continued obstacles with claim systems integrations, and limited use of outcome measures and risk-reward strategies to propel top performance from internal staff, vendor partners, and medical providers. The study found broad consensus about what matters most in claims management. However, formal training programs are modest relative to the complexity of these and other tasks. Less than half of the respondents provide training to senior-level claim staff, and a smaller percentage invest in training new hires. 39% of respondents who do provide new hire training say that training ends within three months, and another 28% say it ends four to six months post-hire. 
The majority of respondents say it takes up to four years for new employee investment and training to pay off. The industry has struggled to bring technology tools to the ingester in a streamlined, user-friendly way. Unfortunately, new symptoms can be very difficult to integrate. And in medical news, scientists are working on a new treatment to restore breathing after long-term paralysis from a spine injury. Severe spine injury cases involving paralysis are among the most costly industrial injuries. But now, Case Western Reserve researchers have developed a procedure that restores function to muscles involved in the control of breathing, even when they have been paralyzed for more than a year. The breakthrough offers hope that one day patients with severe spinal cord injuries will be able to breathe again without the assistance of a ventilator. Researchers presented the results at Neuroscience 2014, the annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience. Investigators focused their research on a group of nerves that extend from the respiratory control center in the brainstem down to the C3 through C5 vertebral levels of the spinal cord located in the middle of the back. These fibers, or brain axons, control the diaphragm muscle in its critical function of breathing. An injury to the spinal cord above the C3 vertebrae can cause widespread muscle paralysis, leading to difficulties in breathing and regulation of cardiac output. Unfortunately, these injuries high in the neck are the most common among sufferers of spinal cord trauma. Following injury to the spinal cord, damaged nerve fibers die, causing loss of the, loss of the connections between the brain and muscles of the body. To help preserve tissue immediately after injury, a scar forms at the site of the trauma and extends the distance of several inches up and down the spinal cord. This scar tissue is very dense, contains sugars that inhibit new neuronal growth, and does not reduce in length or intensity over time. The consequence is that new connections cannot form to enable muscle function after injury, which is exceptionally important to breathing. Spinal cord injury, induced paralysis of the respiratory muscles, causes low oxygen in the blood, increases the body's drive to breathe, and drives any functioning respiratory muscles to work harder. The breathing capacity of the spinal cord injured is often not enough to fully, to fully support a patient's life. However, if new nerve fibers or connections can form in the spinal cord, then pathways can be activated to restore respiratory function. So Case Western Reserve researchers devised a technique to treat the injury site with a specially designed enzyme to reopen connections and to apply respiratory therapy to strengthen the remaining functioning respiratory muscles. In laboratory animals, investigators used the combination technique to restore respiratory function many months after the injury. This finding is extraordinary, not only because function to the paralyzed muscle was completely restored, but also because researchers were able to achieve breathing in animals that had been injured for a year and a half. While these results are encouraging, more research is required to perfect the treatment. More than two-thirds of the animals in the study responded to the combined treatment strategy while the treatment had no effect on the remaining animals. 
Two-thirds of the animals that responded to the combined treatment resumed normal breathing, while the other third experienced erratic breathing in the injured muscle. This procedure has the potential to alleviate the long-suffering of currently injured patients, improving their quality and potentially length of life. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I am Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.